0: A a hand clap a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
2: 18 plus. The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Slate is on a quest to identify the top technological marvels of the contemporary age, the seven wonders of the modern world. Unlike the architectural monuments of antiquity, the great achievements of today are made possible by systems, infrastructure, and technologies that are, for the most part, invisible. To find out more, go to slate.com slash seven wonders and check back every week for a new wonder of the modern world. This series was developed in partnership with GE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 5th, 2014, the I'm Pregnant, Don't Fire Me edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. On today's show, we will consider the latest decision by a grand jury not to indict a white cop who killed an innocent black man, the Eric Garner case. Also, the Supreme Court asked whether an employer can lay off a pregnant woman or not lay off. I guess it's lay off. Well, Emily will decide whether it's lay off exactly what it is. Not lay off. Not Not lay off. And then, was Obamacare a form of political suicide for the Democratic Party, annoying white middle-class voters in order to help poor minority non-voters? That's the case that Chuck Schumer has essentially been making, and there's a New York Times story that made the same, same argument this week. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, the Rolling Stone alleged gang rape story and journalistic ethics. We will dive into that controversy. A New York grand jury will not... Indict New York police officer Daniel Pantaleo in the death of Eric Garner. Garner was nabbed by police on Staten Island this summer for no particularly good reason. They thought he was selling loose cigarettes. He was placed in a chokehold, chokehold that is not legal or not allowed under New New York Police Department policy, and died soon after he had asthma and various other health problems that probably contributed to his death, his cries for help ignored by Pantaleo and other officers arresting him. All this was captured in several videos, but including one cell phone video, Garner is black, Pantaleo is white. This case is many ways much clearer than the Ferguson and the Michael Brown, Darren Wilson case that uh, has gripped the nation over the past several months. To me, I mean, Emily, let's start with you because you're always so good in the legal aspects of it. So Darren Wilson case was not terribly surprising to me. The grand jury decision. This one was shocking and strange and 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 disturbing because there was no. It didn't equip, appear that there was any mystery about what was happening.
3: Yeah, I feel the same way. I this one plunges me into the depths of despair. The video is so upsetting to watch. The encounter escalates so quickly. We can hear Garner pleading. It seems to take Pantaleo a significant amount of time to get off Garner, despite Garner saying over and over again that I can't breathe. So how is this possible? And in fact, I hate to say it, not actually that surprising, even though it is shocking. It's because it's really, really hard to indict or convict a cop in 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 any use of violence. Um, And presumably what happened here was that the grand jury believed Pantaleo's testimony that he did not intend to kill or even to harm Garner, that he was trying to use this like wrestling hold, which wasn't exactly a chokehold, and that he – claims that he got stuck between garner and the glass of the storefront that he was afraid the glass was going to buckle he has this whole kind of set of claims about what was going through his mind that i guess the grand jury believed and that was why they let him off but i just can't see how they could have decided not to charge negligent homicide or manslaughter here it's it's really hard to understand
2: I just realized I forgot to introduce you guys. You're Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. And next to me is (laughs) John John Dickerson. I didn't notice until that. I noticed at the time, but I thought. I was like, why hasn't John spoken yet? But, uh, you know, anyway, uh, John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. John, one of the the lines post Ferguson has been, oh, if guns were less of a problem, this, you know, we wouldn't have these killings. Or if we had videotape, you know, cops were videotaping everything so it was transparent, we wouldn't have this kind of police outrage. Yet here we have a case where there is videotape, there are no guns, there's still a death, and there's still no punishment. What Does that mean that the, the kind of call to reduce cop gun deployment and to have cops filming things
1: as those calls are fruitless or that this is just an outlier case? The first thing that struck me is the video piece of it. And so just having the video, it doesn't change the way the grand jury is going to behave because as as Emily said, and as Josh forhees wrote in Slate, the default setting of the of the grand jury system is to side with the police who have the kind of almost the monopoly on um, sanctioned use of violence in the way our um, our system is set up. But I still think cameras are useful because in this case, what may happen is that the visuals of this are so hard to, as Emily said, it's so hard to watch. And Pantaleo is not by himself. He's there with at least four other policemen. Uh, Gardner is not – he doesn't have a gun. He's not resisting in any way other than to say, leave right. me alone. Right. Uh, and yet
2: they would have tr- had that – Bogus. He was resisting arrest. If there had been no right. video, if they would there had have been said, no video, he resisted arrest.
1: And so this is, seems to me a much more the power of the video here was not enough to convince the grand jurors. But I think it, it it clearly when you listen to President Obama's remarks and the facts of the case are obviously different too. And so that changes things in this instance too from the Michael Brown, uh, Darren Wilson case. But the images here seem so much more powerful. The injustice seems so much harder to get your head around that I think it could have a a ripple effect that changes things in a way that Ferguson will not.
3: I agree. I feel like the absolutely wrong lesson from this is that we should back away from having cops videotape themselves, especially in street stops. You have to think about this in terms of deterring police behavior as well as what happens to them after the fact. And Seeing other people around you videotaping something because Panaleo was aware of that is different from wearing a camera yourself all the time and the way that could change your perception of what it's going to mean when someone sees this on camera. And also we have to try video cameras out and see how they work over time and, you know, causing patterns and causing statistics to change. We can't use this one case to decide that they're not going to work when we've barely tried them yet.
2: That's, that is absolutely the case. I want to get into to where our moral righteousness meets our lifestyle satisfaction. So one of the things that has happened, particularly in American cities of the sort that, that all of us live in, is that in the past 15 or 20 years, there's been a change in policing, led, pioneered largely out of New York with a broken windows theory, James Q. Wilson's theories about reducing the appearance of chaos. And really targeting low-level crime, low-level sense of disorder, and using that as a way to create greater order in the city and and have a – it ends up – I mean, among other things, it ends up having a follow-on effect where – Cities become much safer. Violent crime drops enormously. New York City is as safe as it's been, I think, in a century maybe. It's unbelievable how little violent crime there is now in New York City, a city which you know, was in, in the 1970s and 80s was a password, a watchword for chaos, urban chaos and violence. One of the things that caused this is that very, very aggressive policing of small things like selling loose cigarettes, like turnstile jumping, like... Littering, like general, you know, drinking in public, forms of mild social disorder, of which, and again, it's usually poor people and minorities who are who tend to be the targets of that police order. We are the beneficiaries of that kind of policing. We, as as well off white people living in cities, are the beneficiaries of that kind of policing. How do we deal with that tension between wanting cities to to have order, to have a sense that that you can go anywhere, do anything at any time, and it's safe? With The fact that this very aggressive policing has a baleful effect on individual people and puts the – in particular the lives of young black – not the lives of young black men because I don't think it's like the number of deaths is not that huge but the the kind of way way of living that young black men are in a constant state of harassment and annoyance because of it.
3: I mean we have to be able to put up with less broken windows policing and allow for more disorder in – it, we're just really? not – Really? Is such you're going yes. to
2: accept that? You, well, you are going to accept that? Emily. I do not fucking believe of, that There are different levels second. of disorder
1: too. There's also a distinction between the squeegee men, which is kind of feels like the first um, assault on this kind of – who were the, the people in New York who would come up to the cars and like clean the, the windshield and then ask for money. That was a more aggressive – incursion into the daily lives of Manhattanites than in this instance. So I think you can imagine there's a spectrum of you don't want people like urinating in the middle of Fifth Avenue and you can stop Is that, that happening a lot? No, no. I'm saying in the 70s it was happening. <laughs> I see. Okay. Because uh, so David was talking about a historical trend here in the cleanup of New York, which started with cleaning up uh, the squeegee man and the people in the street. And you could – something that, that seems much more reasonable than the cigarette assault arrest that we had here that led to this.
2: Right. But where, where do you allow it to go?
1: Well – I mean, you, you draw the lines wherever you, you the way you always do with law, right? I mean, you don't you know you you don't want somebody driving seventy miles an hour down Fifth Avenue, but you're not going to put a car in hock for going forty. I mean, you have restraint in the way you apply the laws, and there this obviously was a total lack of restraint, but it doesn't mean you throw at so it.
2: So, is the problem here? Let me let's put it a different way: is the problem that he was being harassed slash arrested for possibly selling loose cigarettes, or the problem just that the cops? Arrested him in a really, really bad way and killed him.
3: I mean, right?
2: Well, see, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the first one
1: is a problem. Well, the second one certainly is. The second (laughs) one is
2: obviously a problem. But is it a problem that you solve by saying we're going to train cops differently? We're going to tell them how they approach people and treat the people they're dealing with differently? But not that the the basic nature of the policing, which is that we're not going to allow minor level chaos. We're not going to allow street disorder.
3: I think that these are all really nuanced decisions that get made. Case by case, yes, they get made just by the cop on the street, but they also get made about particular different kinds of behavior. And I think John is right to distinguish the squeegeeing, which could seem menacing and aggressive from, you know, urinating in the park, from turnstile jumping, from selling loose cigarettes. I mean, part of this has to do with how harmful and scary to other people is this versus just disorderly, you know, graffiti, things that are part of the city and they maybe aren't but they're not but actually. Graffiti scary. is a
2: huge one, Emily. Huge. Which is? Graffiti. Graffiti is graffiti. gigantic. Graffiti uh-huh. is a crime. Is a crime that causes no one any damage. It like doesn't. You know, like whatever. It makes it harder to read a map that's got a graffiti over it. But it literally causes no damage. No. But it getting rid of graffiti has been gigantic psychological gain. For cities which have managed to do it, huge. If you just take, just go to a city which hasn't, like Detroit, and you feel like, whoa, things are really screwed up here because there is like there's no there's no sense that anyone has control of anything, and part of it is that there's this chaotic graffiti everywhere. So yeah, I so agree. I, don't, I, don't I also think, you think so, though you have graffiti. to have a
3: proportionate response. I mean, this goes back to the division you were making a few minutes ago: the difference between. Policing for loose cigarette sales versus, like, overwhelming use of force escalating into a killing in 30 seconds. Like, you would not want someone to be in a chokehold and dead from graffiti. You would want the cop to be dealing with it in a much milder way. And if someone ran away or refused to be arrested in that situation, it's worth it to let them go.
1: Right. Right. So right. that that's the point. A lot a lot of people have said both in the in this case and in the Michael Brown case, you know, the answer is when the police tell you to stop, you stop.
3: Right, uh, but, that, if, but if if someone answer. resists and doesn't, that doesn't give the police a reason to necessarily up things to the highest possible and to then and, kill them. Yes. Yes, I mean that's the that's the trade-off here and I I want to say because I get so much um email angry at me for the way I think about the police. Most police do the right thing, do a good job, want to be helping people. The problem is what are the policies along the margins that give the cops who are more prone to abuse their power, more license to do that, or that push cops who don't want to abuse their power in the direction of being more you know, aggressive and bureaucratic and scary themselves. And a
1: key component, again, I know I've mentioned this, but that's different than what happened in Ferguson is that in this case, the policeman was under, there was no, you can't suggest that his life was in any danger or threatened in any possible way. There were a whole bunch of other cops and the resisting arrest was at the the barest form possible. Um, On on the other hand,
2: I would say that the form of Violence he undertook was not a form that you would think would actually. You sh- you shoot a gun. Your intent. You're basically intending to kill somebody. Right. Whereas you. Put someone, you know, you're like putting a move on someone. You, he, he, in no sense thought that what he was going to do was going to cause this person to die. Right. But that's Although why the, footage, the New York
3: Police Department has banned yeah, chokeholds totally. because yeah. they are very slippery yep. and bad things happen from them inadvertently. Yep. yep. We should also say he could still be punished by the police department, and I really hope he is.
1: We, this also comes. We not only we have Ferguson, we now have this. We also have the shooting of the 12 year old boy Tamir Rice in uh, Cleveland by a police officer who had an abysmal record, there's been reporting uh, not just about his, apparently he was a terrible shot, uh, obviously not in this case, but what's worse is the evaluations of him. And the, basically one of the evaluations said he has an uncontrollable immaturity that cannot be fixed by experience or training. Wow! And then he went basically left that police department and then joined the Cleveland police department. And so the reason I think that's interesting or important in this conversation since it's now a global conversation is that laws that give all of the power to the state to a policeman and then in grand juries that have uh, this default setting to protect the policeman, when you have a character like this, this cop in Cleveland who's obviously a mess, they still nevertheless get all that protection of that system and that can't be right. Last question on this and then we'll move on. Why do you think –
2: so far we're we're taping on thursday so far the protests in new york have been quite mild there doesn't seem and, the, and even the summer the protests about this killing were relatively mild the garner killing why do you think it is that ferguson in terms of protest and activation and and anger was so much deeper than this Staten Island killing. Is it just that New York is better police, like the New York cops handled the protest better and didn't let them escalate? Or is it? I don't really know. I was on vacation during the the Ferguson turmoil. So I didn't really figure out how it erupted so much.
3: I think the cops in New York handled the protest and outcry much, much better. The city handled it better. Absolutely. I also think that the Michael Brown story has changed over time. In the initial moment when you were on vacation, He was a teenager. The story from his friend made it sound like he was entirely innocent and blameless in a way that I think has become much muddier over time, not to justify the fact that he was killed. I don't think it's justified. But, you know, the video of him in the store being super aggressive toward the store owner when he's shoplifting the cigarillos, like that changed the storyline. But the protests had already taken off at that point and the incredible militarized overreaction of the Ferguson. And police had already gotten going. And so that narrative unspooled in this way that was different from New York, even though, in retrospect, as you were saying at the beginning, David, the wrongdoing um, and the blamelessness of Eric Garner here just see and the fact that we have this videotape make this case, in retrospect, clearer.
2: All right. Gaffest this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. With the holidays. almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. There's the traffic, there's the parking, it's packed with people mailing their holiday gifts and packages. So use stamps.com instead. With stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then your mail carrier picks it up. It's easy and it's convenient. Right now, you can get a special offer when you use our promo code GABFEST, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. This week, the Supreme Court considered the case of Peggy Young, who was ordered by UPS to continue heavy lifting. She was a driver. She continued heavy lifting of packages after she got pregnant, even though her doctor told her she needed to stop doing it. UPS treated Young as it treated other employees with health problems caused off the job or injuries off the job, chose not to accommodate her. The basic legal question – well, Emily will tell us what the basic legal question – I'll give the basic basic legal question. The basic legal question is whether the 1978 law limiting pregnancy discrimination protects what UPS did or whether it does not protect what UPS did. Emily, as I r- sort of read about this case and read in this case, it feels like there's a really complicated, nuanced, statutory interpretation question the court, Supreme Court is dealing with and then a much larger cultural question that all of us can talk about. But you can distinguish –
3: So the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which was first passed in 1978, 76, 78,
2: 78. says that
3: pregnant women, quote, shall be treated the same for all employment-related purposes, dot, 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 as other persons not so affected, i.e. not pregnant, but similar in their ability or inability to work, end quote. Uh, What does that mean? So UPS interpreted the rule to mean that – Various accommodations UPS had bargained for with its employees did not necessarily apply to pregnant workers. And the, the most vulnerable point for UPS is that UPS had had worked out with its workers that if, if you lost your driver's license, for example, because of a drunk driving charge, well, then they would accommodate you and find someone else to drive you around. But if you're pregnant and can't lift the heavier package anymore, oh, no, no, you don't get that accommodation. That just seems like totally backwards and messed up. And so then the question is, OK, well, if you look back at this law, at this idea of treating pregnant people the same as people who aren't pregnant but are similar in their ability or inability to work, should UPS be extending those same accommodations, which also applied to people with um, certain kinds of injuries to pregnant women. I mean, it seems like in this case, it's a no-brainer. Yes, they should have applied them. It just seems completely like, why wouldn't they have? But, you know, there are obviously costs to saying that business have to be regulated in, um, ways to protect against discrimination. And so this is a potentially not hugely expansive anti-discrimination law, but there are you know, more than 60 percent of pregnant women are in the workforce. So there's a lot of potential accommodation going on. And the question is, how far does this law really push? Does it mean that – does it give pregnant women what um, one of the lower court judges called most favorite nation status, where every time you accommodate anyone else – then you have to extend the same accommodation. Or are they least favorite nation status, which is what it looked like was going on at UPS?
2: And is there any clarity, consistency about what what it feels like the law means? I mean, does it it feel like most favored nation?
3: No, but the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has kind of updated the regulations for these laws and made it sound like pursuant to the Americans with Disabilities Act and other – updating of the pregnancy discrimination act in 2008 that the pregnant women do have more rights to accommodation than they did before when the original law passed in 1978 it was responding to one of my absolute least favorite supreme court decisions <laughs> it's actually a pair of decisions in uh, the 1970s which essentially said that there was no entitlement under you know equal protection law for pregnant women because pregnancy was not the same – discriminating on the basis of pregnancy had nothing to do with discriminating on the basis of gender. That Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist said you could just divide the world into pregnant workers and non-pregnant workers. And the fact that all the pregnant workers happened to be women was just irrelevant for purposes of the legal analysis. I mean, that was just totally insane. That was
2: a time when the court had no women on it, I would –
3: Right, and Hazard. Justice Ginsburg was one of the people filing briefs opposing this view when back when she was a litigator. Well, you know, now she's on the court, and I hope there will be a majority for a much more, you know, pro pro women, pro recognizing reality set of opinions in the UPS case than there was back then. On the other hand, this court has a terrible record of late um, on sex and uh, gender related issues. So we'll see.
2: But John. This case does feel to me like one where there is a common cause on the left and right. That it does seem that liberals as you would expect who who you know are protecting the rights of women in the workplace and and have been Advocates for that for generations are meeting up with conservatives who really want to – who value pregnancy and want people to be able to have their babies and, and to to honor that part of it. And they – everyone seems to be kind of on the same
1: side except, right. I suppose, probably the Chamber of Commerce in this one. Right. And then one other thing to add for the pro-life forces or anti-abortion rights uh, folks, depending on your – how you classify them, is that you don't want to create economic incentives for people to abort their children. Right. So if it if being pregnant hurts you in the workforce, then you play it out and see it happening in that way. You know what? I also don't understand, though. Why did why wasn't UPS just more mellow as a way to I mean, is this a rampant problem that women who get pregnant who are drivers say that they can't carry things? I mean, why? It just seems excessively harsh of UPS when you know with a with a little like accommodation and now of course they've they've actually changed their employment practices and I can't, Emily, was that in response to the EEOC change or did they do it on their own? I mean,
3: I think they did it on their own because the publicity from this case has been terrible yeah. for them. I think the answer is probably no. This was not a rampant problem. Weirdly, this case never went to trial. There wasn't a whole lot of fact finding. And so the parties are still fighting over who got the other sorts of accommodations for workers, how many people were in that group, how many pregnant women were there. So I can't exactly answer your question. I will note, however, that while the Obama administration, is on the side of Peggy young the United States postal office is not uh, giving these accommodations to pregnant women so the government needs to go and take a look at its own policies
2: and here. there and there are lots of other kinds of businesses where, where you know almost any any job where you're on your feet all day any job where you're working in an assembly line or working in a restaurant where you're if you're pregnant, it's going to be a it's going to it's going to affect a large large number of people. It's just confusing because obviously, if you're 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 working at UPS and because the truck was packed badly and a big box falls on you and breaks your arm, U, UPS will surely say, "Oh, this was a job. You know, you you were injured on the job, and we will accommodate you, and you can you know do things with your just sit in the office and do paperwork for." for two months and help us that way. There's no, they wouldn't have any ambiguity about that. Similarly, if you got drunk on the weekend and punched a wall and hurt your hand, U- UPS would be pretty justified in saying, you know what? Like your, your stupidity that makes you unable to work. We don't have to deal with that. It's your, it's your own fault. Like we don't have to give you, pay you disability or let you not work or give you lighter work. If we don't want to. Pregnancy is like, is weird because it's in, it isn't, it's like in between. It's like a choice and it it does inflict a cost on the company. I often think, I mean, I'm somebody with lots of children and I benefit all the time from the way that society, you know, helps people with children or accommodates you or like lets you leave work earlier or go to your kids' games or whatever it is. But it, it's it's not true to say that that doesn't impose a cost on all those people who don't have children or who handle it in a different way. So we have to account for that.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. That's important to recognize. I think also the question here is how much of a cost is business and society going to absorb? in order to make it just a little bit easier for pregnant women to stay at work. No one is arguing that the Pregnancy Discrimination Act means that, you know, if you can't do your job at all for some hugely extended time, that you have to be allowed to do it anyway, right? I mean, there is always going to be some point at which it's unreasonable, the accommodation that's expected. But in this case, this was a woman who was told that she wasn't supposed to lift over 20 pounds. Yes, her root had potentially packages up to 70 pounds on it, but most of them were pretty light. And so she didn't really need very much help. And the kind of help she was asking for was being extended to workers in these other categories, including the people with drunk driving charges. So really, it just seems like this is this should be something that companies just have to do.
1: Also, in this case, UPS had existing employment provisions to... As we've said before, to handle a category of employees who were unable to keep fulfilling their tasks. And if one of them is that you got drunk and lost your driver's license, like if you're going to accommodate that kind of thing, you're already setting a pattern for a certain kind of accommodation for unforeseen and unexpected circumstances. And – So if the pattern – it seems to me if a company has already set the pattern, then a pregnant woman who is in this special case with a doctor's note, right? This isn't just – she's not just making it up. That's what just seems so egregious on the part of UPS here as – this is, of course, ducking the larger question. Yeah,
2: sure, sure. I totally agree. It was ridiculous. But it's not – this, as in so many cases, allows us all to to get into a self-righteous lather. I enjoy the lather. Of UPS, but it's (laughs) – we have, you have to remember that when you do this, you're saying, we want to pay more for you. We're willing to pay more for UPS packages for UPS shipping because we think it's so important that UPS does this. That we...
3: Yeah, I'm really... I'm signing up for paying a little more. You know, the other thing about pregnancy, which is different, David, from the larger question of all the accommodations for people with kids, pregnancy is time-limited. It's not like we're saying, you know, and forever, you're never going to be able to do your job in the same way and you have to go home at noon. Right. We're saying, like, right. this is a... it's a temporary disability. Right? It, yeah. It's bounded. It's really bounded in time.
2: Yeah. Are there any other kinds of pregnancy cases that you know of, Emily, making their way towards courts or winding their way or laws? like Because I find these these are really fascinating. I wonder if there are others that are looming that you know of.
3: I This was the big one. I don't know of other ones. Um, I'm sure they are out there. But I think the court sort of reached out and grabbed this one. The, gov- the federal government asked the court to wait because they said that the new EOC guidelines were going to take care of this issue. Um, but I think there were at least some members of the court that were eager to take this case and make their own court-driven statement about this issue. The
1: One other thing, just back to your point, David, about the left and right having common cause, they do in an intellectual sense in the way this case is being debated, but I think because the laws have changed and because the EEOC reading of the laws have changed and because UPS has changed its law, there's no like There's nothing newly to push against. I guess when we see the final Supreme Court decision, if that then has some repercussions, you can imagine them joining to put pressure on Congress to pass a law pretty quickly.
3: Hey, you know what? I gave a bad answer a minute ago. There are a bunch of other cases about pregnancy they're different. They are about these issues of criminalizing drug use by pregnant women, or there have been cases where women have miscarried, but been accused of inducing their miscarriage in a way that then led to fetal homicide charges. There's this whole large set of questions about, you know, pregnant women as autonomous beings in the world with control over what happens inside of them versus the state coming in um, in this authoritarian way and wanting to dictate the circumstances of the pregnancy.
2: Those, wow. Those will be good. Yeah. Keep an eye on those, Emily. Let's talk okay. about those. Slate is on a quest to identify the top technological marvels of the contemporary age, the seven wonders of the modern world. Unlike the architectural monuments of antiquity, the great achievements of today are made possible by systems, infrastructure, and technologies that are, for the most part, invisible. To find out more, go to slate.com slash sevenwonders and check back every week for a new wonder of the modern world. The series was made possible by GE. There's a piece in the New York Times this week by Tom Edsel channels Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democrat of New York, to make the case that Obamacare has been a political disaster for Democrats. The heart of Schumer's claim and Edsel's gloss on it is that Obama took on health reform at a time when the country was in economic collapse, everyone was hurting. And instead of addressing the issues that affect the vast middle class and focusing on those issues, which is more around wage stagnation, crumbling infrastructure in particular, he tackled an issue that wasn't actually bothering the overwhelming majority of Americans who basically tolerated or liked their health insurance arrangements. The resulting law, the Affordable Care Act, has served to tax the upper 80% of earners, largely to allow the poorest 20% uh, who are poor and often minority and often don't vote uh, more access to health care. So it's helped. It's given a huge boost to the poor who tend to be not voters and it has hurt, actively hurt by reducing the income of people in the middle class and higher. So John – is this a persuasive case to you
1: well i'd like to first put the entire case its argument and the assessment of its claims aside for just a minute and talk about your pregnancy and assess this and assess this as a pure act of political theater. So we had this big election in 2014 in which the Democrats take a big pounding. There is a lot of rumbling about the fact that the Democrats didn't talk enough about what they could do for the middle class in that election, and that that was the fault in that case. Harry Reid, leader of the Democrats in the Senate, is seen as weakened and is seen as a, um, a possibly to blame, although there's been a lot of fight between the White House and Harry Reid about how to proceed and how to talk to Democrats. Anyway, the Democrats are looking for a new leader. Chuck Schumer could have gone to the National Press Club and given a speech and said, we need to get back to our democratic values and we need to talk about the middle class and we need to do this and that's not his voice. But he could have said a bunch of things and no one would have covered it. No one would – it would have been one of a billion of such speeches as the Democrats try to figure out what they're trying to do. However, if you go into a theater and you yell fire, which is the equivalent of what this is, you get a lot of people to listen to you and think, hey, that Chuck Schumer, he's he's, he's speaking about these economic issues and and he really knows where it's at. So before we assess the argument on the merits, we could imagine that it is a total phony effort to get attention and now as the conversation goes forward, not about the Affordable Care Act, but about how to talk about the middle class and how what the Democrats should do, Chuck, Chuck Schumer now has a real seat at the table that distinguishes him from Dick Durbin and Harry Reid and Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and so forth and so on. So hmm. now, wait, now can you get to now the substance? We can well, of substance. Now we can get to the substance of the matter. Well first the first claim, which is that the president didn't you know, he jumped right on healthcare the minute he got into office. I think is a slight revision of history. The president didn't give his first healthcare talk until four months into office. He spent In the fact, first. In
3: fact, I remember a lot of worrying that he was never going to get around to it and seemed to be dragging his heels. Right. And what was he waiting for?
1: In that same four-month period, he had fifty-nine economic related events. I know these numbers because I wrote in 2010 a piece about people were, were saying, you know, he, he started right on healthcare. So that's the first thing is that he spent a lot of time dealing with the stimulus and getting that passed and and dealing with the economic crisis of the time. Now, the, where the White House may have been at fault is they didn't pass a big enough stimulus. We can talk about that some other day. But the, the notion that the president took his eye off the economic ball, I think is wrong. Secondly, when the president campaigned on healthcare, as a candidate, and then came into office and talked about it, he talked about it as a middle class, as a way to to strengthen the middle class in two significant ways. When people talked about the health of the middle class... Going back well before Obama was even a presidential candidate, they said that the two great threats were the high cost of education and the crumbling education and the growing cost of health care and its disappearance both from employers who provided it, the job lock that would happen to people who wanted to move in a globalized economy and jump from job to job, but they couldn't because they were tied to their employer who had the job. The fact that the premiums were going up, the fact that uh, long-term health care costs to deal with the baby boomers were going to crowd out spending on things like infrastructure and other things. Things, and therefore, we had to get those costs under control with some kind of a health care plan or else the middle class would be threatened. Health care was like seen as a big thing you needed to fix to help the middle class. And then finally, when you, they did polling in the Obama campaign in 08 and then again in 012 and you asked people, what do you care about? Wages and health care were intermingled and intermixed. That people had started – there was a period where people were not seeing their wages increase but they were seeing greater health care benefits. And so the, the Obama folks and they still feel this way that the greatest thing the president could do to help middle class families was remove the danger of the fact that you were one illness away from bankruptcy. And that if you could take care of people's economic woes around health care, you would give them stability, peace of mind, protect them from the whims of the job cycle, all of which is to help those middle class people that Chuck Schumer is talking about. Now, that, that we can get to the political case later, but I think all of that is totally unaccounted right. for in the way Schumer right, sees the right. world.
2: And, and, and the problem is that voters appear to be ungrateful. So, so I'm – I think that that was a very persuasive outline of it John and and it's absolutely true that in particular the no pre-existing conditions ban which was something that that just kept people the people were so anxious they never would give up their insurance if they had any kind of health problem because they they were worried about it that the shift in that has been huge for everybody even though we may be paying more because we're subsidizing the poor we feel like oh that's that's better but isn't it a case which as with things like social security or medicare or Anything that becomes perceived as a – people internalize it immediately as their right that you stop getting whatever political gains on it. I don't think people give Democrats credit. They no longer credit the Democratic Party for Social Security particularly. It's not, it's not like every, Democrats get the vote for it or get the votes because Medicare exists. People just think like that's there for me. I deserve it. I don't I've think it.
3: that's true yet. It's called Obamacare. I mean, I think it is heavily associated with the Democrats. I think there's another well, but problem. The, but the, I think it's,
2: go ahead. Go ahead, Emily. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead.
3: Well, I was just going to say three things. I mean, healthcare.gov, dumb as it is to be lingering on it as some huge problem, it gave people a sense that there was something wrong with the government in general and with – Obamacare in particular. Second thing is when you look at the way in which Obamacare has actually redistributed wealth, many of the people who are benefiting the most, in fact, are poor people. I think that's a good thing about the law. But in terms of the Chuck Schumer calculus about middle class gains, it doesn't – I mean, I agree with you about the loss of insecurity and I don't think he's crediting that enough. But I do think there is like a fact to be reckoned with in the wealth distribution.
1: I think that – The people who are most likely to see this as a gift are the ones that Emily just described, who are not registered voters. The people who are one bankruptcy or one illness away from a bankruptcy – don't necessarily know they were saved from the bankruptcy because it's a condition that they weren't expecting to happen anyway. I mean, yes. in other words, right. nobody thinks like, oh, right. you know, I'm going to get right. really That's sick what and it get bankrupt. And so you've right. given them a, a hedge against that, but because they weren't really necessarily staying up at, uh, awake at night, they don't feel it as acutely as the person who right. had nothing and now has something. Right. There's actually in the – I'm going
2: to chat about this later, but Chris Rock has this amazing interview with Obama – and with uh, not with Obama, Frank Rich interviews Chris Rock. <laughs> Rich. Frank Rich interviews Chris Rock, and it's an amazing interview. But one of the it things really that, that Chris it's Rock awesome. talks about is that how Obama should have let everything go to hell. That in fact, by stepping in, by ameliorating things immediately, people are much less grateful because they didn't feel how bad things could have been.
1: Yeah, I love well,
3: this, this analogy is the argument for him. Not yeah for why he doesn't get credit for staving off the financial crisis because in fact, you, it's hard to feel. What could have happened if it doesn't actually happen?
1: I love Rock's analogy, which is that he should have done what team owners do when they save a failing franchise: is they let the franchise fail even more, right? And so that it becomes right. just like Every a bailout, yes. nothing. Rebel. And I think, and and I think the Washington uh, Football Team's Dan Snyder is doing an incredible job at that. <laughs> also,
3: right. isn't the Seventy Sixers who haven't won a game all yeah, season? Yeah, yeah. The
2: Seventy Sixers are pursuing that strategy avidly. That should have been the Obama strategy. So let's go back. Let's go back to Obamacare though. So why is it that that the white middle class is so alienated from the Democratic party these days? Why and not middle
1: class? Why is it that it's white voters? It's not the middle class. Why it's is that white, white voters, voters
3: who haven't graduated from college?
1: It's white voters. And like there's a huge white well, voter is. gap. it is. I mean, Mitt Romney got 59% of the white vote and that's not just, you know, so and wasn't it also it wasn't even higher in
2: in the midterm?
1: Uh yeah. The white voters? more white well it's also because the midterm took place in places where Democrats have other cultural reasons. I mean, you know, race is a piece of it. And I, when I say that, immediately comes to mind the share of the white vote John Kerry got in certain parts of the country and the share of the white vote that Barack Obama got in 2008 in parts of the country. And there were places in the country where John Kerry got more votes than Barack Obama, even though John Kerry was a much less popular candidate, a much weaker candidate. And so that is that map, which tends to run through the South Uh, has to be, you have to account for that in this calculus and conversation. And how much you have to account for it, we don't know. But that's part of the, the Democratic Party's why it is not in favor or doesn't have an opening to have a conversation with certain kinds of voters in certain parts of the country.
3: I wonder if we could also find some numbers to support an argument about increasing polarization, that the kind of deep irony of Obama's attempt to reach beyond partisanship and be so centrist has been in fact that the country has become more and more divided and polarized regionally racially that there are these in terms of class there are these really entrenched ways of looking at the world that people have dug in around I'm sure you could blame our very selective reading of or or viewing of media as linked to this right that people have their own facts as well as their own opinions
2: you're citing two different things Obama's doing one thing and this other phenomenon is happening I don't think that Obama Obama being trying to reach the center is the cause of more polarization.
3: No, no. I was saying that it's ironic that given that that was at the beginning his main purpose, that in fact what we see six years later is this more polarized country based on factors that some of which were probably out of his control, although I agree with John that I think Obama's race also is – fueling aspects of the division, even though we don't want to like overcredit that. I don't think it's the main factor. I don't think we have to – you can recognize that without saying like, oh, everyone who doesn't like Obama is a racist. Right. But there, there is an otherness to him in certain people's view.
1: Right. The shape of that otherness and the president's attempt to make it smaller, explain it to people, was really on my mind when I went back and read his 2006 speech, where in which he talked about the division's between the secular and religious in America. And what he was essentially trying to do from a political standpoint was say, hey, I may be other to you in religious America because I'm a Democrat, because I'm from the North, because I'm an elite African-American, but here's the way in which, as a progressive, I have connections with you because I believe in Jesus Christ and I not only believe in him, but I came to him later in life and he was trying to build a bridge between religious and secular American. What's interesting is the whole reason he was trying to build the bridge was not only to make himself seem not like the other in terms of a national presidential campaign that he was considering, but also because he said the greatest division between the way we vote is between the religious, the people who go to church once a week or more, and the non-religious. But now the progress on same-sex marriage has been a, a huge story of the last several years, but not as a political story except in the sense that there's no fight over it. I mean, there's legal fights, of course, but Republicans Nobody in 2014 who won did so by running, you know, on a social conservative campaign. It was mostly Democrats using social issues against Republicans. Why what does this all mean? It means that in the past when you had this division, you could say, well, white religious voters in the South, where they're all very religious, are turning out to vote against the Democrat because they see them as these secular heathens. But we haven't really had a culture war campaign since 2004 at a national level in which the two parties are associated with you know, stark cultural differences in the political conversation. So I guess my point is that's not a factor, it seems to me, in aligning these white and, and non-white right. voters. So if so, like what the hell is it? I
2: just, a, this is a side point, but one of the things I like about Obamacare, each party has a set of policies that it pursues, even though it's massively against its own interests. And for the Democrats, the Democrats generally have always tried to help poor people, even though it's not clear that, that there's electoral benefit to it. But that's their, there's an ethos in the Democratic Party for that. And Republicans, it's like invade foreign countries that Americans don't really care about and don't want to invade. That's a form of idealism that animates them. And to call on them to not be that way is to sort of miss the point. Even if Obamacare is in fact a disaster for the middle class, you could say – Which it's not. Which it's not. You could say like the animating force to help the poor is like a really noble, good one and it's one of the originating purposes of the Democratic Party and so good on you even if it costs you. I think Nancy Pelosi made this case in 2010 after they lost the House. Like if if we're going to lose the House because we've done this wonderful thing, like – That's okay because we've done the thing we came here to do.
1: I think that's another thing about the Schumer argument, which rankled so many people in the White House, was that Schumer at one point in his speech talks about how basically all the people who are helped don't come out and vote, which may be a political truth. But a lot of people said, well, you you don't just go into office to get elected. And – What's interesting about that and the long – this debate from – Schumer is one of his complaints about President Obama has been that he never had to climb the greasy pole of politics and so he doesn't know how to deal with polls and doesn't know how to deal and play politics. So that's an interesting subtext here. But then also what's interesting is that the president always said, I didn't do this healthcare thing because it was popular. And, you know, in 20 years, as people are looking at the Obama presidency and what it means, there are those like David Axelrod and others who say, you know, what people don't get about him is he really wanted to come in office and get things done. And people say, well, that sounds pretty. But of course, this White House is highly political. And indeed, they are. But you can be highly political in how you try to do a thing that is ultimately not a huge political slam dunk. And I think that's essentially where we are with the Affordable Care Act. All right, let's go on to Cocktail Chatter.
2: When you basilons are sitting around talking about the decline of the Philadelphia 76ers <laughs> drinking dolefully. My
3: children celebrate that decline. They oh. use it as a weapon against their grandfather.
2: Well, what do, what will you be what will you be drinking on this week, Emily?
3: I read such a good book over Thanksgiving. It's called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. It's by Lucy J. Fowler. It's the book that we are talking about on the Slate Audio Book Club this month. I just thought this was such a great book. I really recommend it. Um, Have you guys read it?
2: You know, I started it and then Hannah, I guess Hannah read it because she was on the Audubon Club with you. And I.
3: Hannah read it, and the beginning is. I didn't like the you beginning. To kind of, yeah, we agree th- that it the beginning requires, it's a little more you have to plow through, and then in retrospect, you appreciate it. But stick with it, go back to it. It's such an interesting meditation on family and on sisterhood in particular and also on relationships between people and animals on radicalism. It just had lots of really interesting food for thought in it.
1: I don't know how you had time to read anything during Thanksgiving. I'm very I was impressed.
3: escaping yeah, my worldwide. family.
1: Yeah, well. Good point. Those of us, those of us who did not have <laughs> such an escape hatch had to climb inside of whatever vintage we could find or just the rubbing alcohol in the <laughs> medicine cabinet. Um. Uh, So, no, I didn't read it. Your chatter, John Dickerson. Oh, uh, my chatter is there was a ridiculous and stupid and dive to the bottom and on the list of things that caused the decline of America in the 21st century debate coverage this week about the president's daughters and how they behaved at this Turkey pardoning, which is itself only like two slots down on the list of things that will lead to the decline of America in the 21st century. And then there was a, a Hill staffer, a Republican, who posted something stupid on Facebook, and then gets fired as a result, or I guess she had to quit. Anyway, all these people were being stupid in a thousand different ways about it. But the only reason I mention that is because it made me think of um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who's my favorite presidential daughter. And I should note, it also made uh, Carol Felsenthal, who wrote a book about her, think about Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Alice Roosevelt Longworth was 17 when her father became president. Teddy Roosevelt was her father. She, her birth had basically killed her mother. Those of you who may remember that Teddy Roosevelt's mother and wife died Within 24 hours of each other, I believe his diary on that day said, the life, the light has gone out of my life. And this was an incredible moment in Teddy Roosevelt's life. And Alice Roosevelt Longworth was the, the baby that was born in that death. She was like – she smoked in public. She gambled. She went out late with men. She rode on streetcars at age 17. She was like – I mean the, the, these daughters like rolled their eyes. Alice Roosevelt Longworth was, uh, was like this most incredible character and she um, – and the press of course covered every little damn thing she did. And even though she was such a crazy person, the president sent her on delegations to Japan. She had like a role. We never – I mean they don't have the – kids of presidents don't have roles anymore. So she lived to be 98 and my mother became friends with her when my mother first came to Washington. And when they first met, the what Alice Roosevelt along with wanted to take my mother to go see was a boxing match. And the Roosevelts had a special box at the boxing match which was so close that the sweat and blood from the boxers would like land on them. And this was seen to be by this – then I guess close to her 90s or maybe is still in her 80s woman like was fantastic but my favorite Alice Roosevelt Longworth quotes are that she had a needlepoint pillow that said, if you don't have anything nice to say about someone, come sit next to me. Um, and she said about her father that he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. And then he, when asked about her as president and all of these escapades and annex that she was involved in, he said, I can either manage my daughter or manage the country, but I cannot do both. She lived an incredible full and raucous, crazy life, which uh, which is really a joy to read about if you have uh, if you have the time. Uh, so I recommend that that you read about her, or you just honor her, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. That is so great! Oh my God!
2: In this moment, the turkey party, I can I just have to bring this up every year because it's my favorite thing that's happened in American politics in the last decade. Was when do you guys remember? Right after two thousand eight, when Sarah Palin. So Sarah Palin lost the election. She goes back in Alaska, and there's the turkey. She's doing whatever the Alaska turkey partying ceremony, but it's taking place at a turkey processing plant. And she's being filmed for a local TV interview, and she doesn't realize that behind her is this sort of furtive employee who is executing t- turkeys? And he's taking these turkeys and shoving them headfirst into this turkey grinder. And <laughs> <laughs> she's—that's
3: right. I do remember. <laughs> oh that. Oh my god! Was it was insane. the greatest
2: moment. It was like this moment. Of you feel like it was such Dada. It was. It was awesome. Anyway, that's not my chatter. My chatter. I basically did my chatter. If you have not had the chance to read Frank Rich's interview with Chris Rock in New York Magazine, go read it. Chris Rock is so smart. He's so funny. He has so many interesting. Things to say about politics, about comedy, about Obama, about coolness, about performance, about practice. It is, it's is—it's an amazing interview. It's, it's one of the most – you come away thinking Chris Rock is just – he's the smartest guy there is in America. So so check it out. Our intern is Max Taney. Our producer is Mike Folo. Joel Meyer is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is, of course, the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Twitter feed at slate gabfest, and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes, leave a comment and write rating while you're there. You can search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store to see that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week.